Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Livorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mark Johnson and Don Tucker about their new book, Out of the Cave, A Natural Philosophy of Mind and Knowing, from a philosopher and neuropsychologist a radical rethinking of certain traditional views about human cognition and behavior. Plato's allegory of the cave trapped us in the illusion that mind mind is separate from body and from the natural and physical world. Knowledge had to be eternal and absolute. Recent scientific advances, however, show that our bodies shape mind, thought, and language in a deep and pervasive way. In Out of the Cave, Mark Johnson and Don Tucker, a philosopher and and a neuropsychologist, propose a radical rethinking of certain traditional views about human cognition and behavior. They argue for a theory of knowing as embodied, embedded, and active and emotionally based. Knowing is an ongoing process, shaped but by our deepest biological and cultural values. Well, Mark, Don, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you. So, as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the global pandemic, I was wondering if we can start by you reflecting on how has it affected you and your work, and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. And we're going to start with Mark. So, you know, the um, it's an interesting thing about the pandemic one of the things it does is sort of sometimes it feels like it takes the body out of um, out of the experience. And, um, you know, you're looking at someone um, who chooses to let their face be shown on a Zoom link and all of that. Um, and, you know, the work Don and I are doing is so much about the central role of the body and everything we do and ability to pick up on people's emotions, you know, at a very basic level. So I and it, one of the worst things for me as a teacher is I, I teach, I've got an introductory class with 250 philosophy students in it. And I miss, you know, there's a, a you just miss the uh, ability to respond in time, you know, to a large group and interact with them in a kind of emotional level. So that's been a problem for me. But in terms of, you know, Don and I working, um, Actually, I don't think it's affected me that much because we can zoom with one another, see see each other, and you know interact pretty much in real time, and you know continue to do our work. Did you find it easy to adjust uh, for the online classes? No, <laughs> no. I mean, <laughs> fortunately, at our university, University of Oregon, um, they they had a. Um, a week-long training session where you get people who are experts in the technical side of this. Thank goodness, because <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, in my introduction to, to philosophy, 
I had to record 29 hour long lectures, you know, so that they could be played back. And, you know, thank goodness I had the, uh, the tech support to, to figure out, you know, it's so complicated and confusing. Um, and even they sometimes have problems. So no, I didn't find it easy, uh, but it, it was the best accommodation we could make get, given the horrible situation we're all in. Oh, that's great. And uh, how about you, Don? Well, I have a similar reaction. I mean, I, I think the, uh, you know, it was the case when, when Mark and I started this project, uh, we would meet for lunch uh, personally uh, at the Campus Glenwood restaurant. And so that real life embodied interaction was part of our work. And, and we have become more virtual in our collaboration. Uh, and I, I have a similar experience as Mark in that, uh, you know, it's, you operate at a distance. It's somehow cooler uh, and, and more cerebral to be interacting virtually rather than uh, in person, uh, whether for classes uh, or in my research laboratory or my company. Uh, it's in some ways scary how easy it is to operate virtually. Um, you know, I think we lose something, but on the other hand, I, I think the, the virtual world turned out to be very easy uh, and not that difficult to adjust to. Certainly, so I, I have a company that's associated with my research lab and we work together under pretty tight uh, timelines and deadlines and responsibilities. And I'm really impressed how easy it has been to transition to the virtual world uh, and how effective we are uh, working remotely. So there's something interesting and scary about our modern society that uh, we do this so easily. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourselves? And we're going to start with Mark. So I was a, a kid in um, the great heartland of the U.S., uh, uh, brought up in the 50s um, in grade school in Kansas, the rolling hills of eastern Kansas. And um, I, I mention this because um, basically, you know, I, I like most of my peers, I was, you know, thought my parents wanted me to be a good Lutheran. And I I learned the following view of myself. I, 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 learned, I, I was taught to believe that human beings had uh, a soul, an eternal, immortal soul. And that was the locus of your thought and your will. Um, and then you happen to have a body. And, and this soul was just lodged in the body for a while. And after you, the body died, the soul would continue on. And what you really wanted to do was be sure that soul was pure and that you acted morally, you know, that sort of thing. And I mention that because I guess I could say the next 50 years of my life from high school on was, has been a moving away from that view and, and, a, and a feeling that that view of what we are is so profoundly mistaken um, and that it's not only mistaken, but it's dangerous in certain ways and highly problematic. And I'll just mention how, um, a couple of things in, in my own development that were milestones in that. So for a while, I was having trouble struggling with the more overtly theological dimensions of that view of the self. Um, 
but I found alternatives. When I went off to college, I fell in love with philosophy. My very first term took philosophy 101. And they were asking all these important questions. What's the meaning of life? Is there a God? Do we have free will? All of these rich, juicy um, uh, existential issues. And um, I was able to find in Kant uh, the a, a kind of way to not have overt theology, but it still gave you this transcendent ego or this kind of transcendent mind that was the source of values and the source of will. And that was fundamentally separate from the, separate from the body. And when I um, got to graduate school, philosophy, I, I, I left philosophy for a while because I was so disheartened. I saw in graduate school that people were talking about, instead of meaning and value, they were talking about referential opacity and propositional structure and how it mapped onto the world. And I felt so alienated from that because it didn't make sense of my experience. So basically I had the good fortune when I was a young professor to go out to Berkeley as a visiting prof. And I met the cognitive uh, science and linguist, um, George Lakoff. And we wrote a book together called Metaphors We Live By. Um, back in 1980. And we, we, we began to see that these metaphors were like um, understanding is seeing, as in I see what you mean, that's an enlightening idea, an illuminating idea, could you shed more light on that thought? Um, we began to see that these metaphors were grounded in aspects of our bodily experience, and that which that's what, what made them so meaningful. And that was sort of the start of my academic career of, of taking the body seriously. And I guess for the next 40 years after that, what I've been doing is exploring the ways in which the body plays a fundamental role in what we think, how we experience things, what we feel, how we're motivated. Um, and uh, so the, the body becomes the um, locus of all of this activity and there's no sense of disembodied self. Um, and so as I went on, I, I realized then that I, 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 at first I had linguistic evidence for our embodiment. Then George Lakoff said, look, Mark, you, you know, we've got to pay attention to this new field, cognitive science that's coming up. And that gave another bunch of um, relevant information. And then finally, um, I realized that you couldn't just do traditional cognitive science. There were certain problems with that, too. And um, we started looking at the neuroscience side of this. And that's when I met, you know, Don, and we began a rather uh, extended and, and exciting uh, interaction on these topics that led up to the publication of uh, Out of the Cave. And Don, how did you get where you are? So I, uh, I would say that a really influential thing in my childhood was discovering evolution. Uh, so like Mark, I came from a traditional uh, American upbringing. This, in this case, I was in, spent my childhood in Louisville, Kentucky, um, a very rich urban Kentucky culture. Uh, and then high school in New York and uh, undergraduate in Colorado and, and, and uh, you know, moving around a lot in the typical American experience. But for me, what was very influential was discovering evolution, discovering the way that biological mm -hmm. concepts can help to explain um, hu the human condition. 
and uh, the roots of uh, our experience and, and social functioning, really, in evolutionary terms. How did we get to be uh, the creatures that we are? So as I uh, went to college and, and uh, studied various things, um, the biological approach was still very interesting to me, uh, but particularly as it helps to explain human experience. So I was very drawn to um, psychoanalysis and Freudian theory, uh, developmental theory, where you study the mind of a child in order to understand the origins of our approach to epistemology. What is the nature of knowledge that we can start gaining it when we are infants and we build upon the evolutionary structure that's wired into the human brain. So an evolutionary developmental approach was uh, always very interesting to me. And yet it was clear that a lot of science uh, becomes highly objectified and where the knowledge is not personally meaningful. So to me, the, the really the exciting um, challenge is to deal with human experience uh, and the subjective meaning of uh, our lives and the things that we do within a, an explanation from biological concepts. And this led to a close interaction with understanding uh, embodiment. And so there was a kind of a natural uh, alignment with uh, Marx's approach to embodied philosophy. And uh, so I thought I could see from the beginning ways that specific questions about the organization of emotion, uh, the nature of concepts, how we organize our cognitive function in a biological framework uh, fit very well with the embodied mind approach in philosophy that Mark was helping to develop. So this combination of your deep expertise, both in psychology and neuroscience, culminated in your new book, Out of the Cave. So can you tell us what is it about? Well, maybe I could start here. Um, <laughs> it's um, basically, we wanted to, to um, present the virtues of a kind of embodied, uh, affective-based um, engagement and conception of, of what it is to, to have a mind, how it is that we know. We, we were, everywhere you look, you find these relatively disembodied views. And I can say more about that if, if um, we need to. But um, we wanted to, we wanted not just to be critical. I mean, it's easy enough to be critical of traditional dualisms like mind, body, cognition, and emotion, that sort of thing. Um, and we, there's, there is some of that in the book, obviously, because we think that there are large stretches of Western philosophy and science that um, got some of this wrong because of their, um, their inability to overcome a kind of deep-seated dualism. But what we really wanted to do was more positive and constructive. And this is where Don's work I found to be so exciting and the work he's doing with people in his lab. Um, 
on the role of human motivational system and the role of affect in um, what we think, what we experience, what our values are, and to see us as animals, um, very sophisticated animals, social animals, situated in complex environments in an evolutionary framework, and to kind of spell what spell out what the implications of that are for what mind is and for what um, it is to know something. And I'll just say um, one of the key ideas is that we've got to get over the idea of knowing as a kind of objective relationship between something in the mind, call it a proposition or and concept or whatever, and something that's supposedly outside the mind. <clears throat> and you have to replace that with a view of knowing as an activity. Uh, you know, we're creatures acting in the world, acting in the environment and responding to the affordances of things in the environment. And so we need to rethink knowing in terms of activity <clears throat> rather than simply standing back and getting a theoretical contemplative take on something. <clears throat> so that's the basic direction of the book. There are subparts that have to do with um, wanting to get a science of the mind that is meaningful to us. They're not, it's not just, as Don was saying, not just objectively rooted in experience and experiment, <clears throat> but also is meaningful to us as human beings with the kind of values we have, the kinds of situations we encounter. Yes, this knowledge uh, uh, is really such an interesting concept. So I wonder if we can start with the science part. So Don, what is the science of human mind and how would you go about studying it, perhaps from neurobiological perspective? Well, it's, a, it's a, um, in some ways a natural process of studying brain activity that we find that it's linked to motivational and emotional processes. Um, we often set up experiments to study cognition as if cognition was an objective process, giving details about the world that are separate from the self and separate from personal orientations. But really, when we, as soon as we do that, we find that the cognitive process itself, the way we think, the way we represent information, is kind of in unavoidably linked to personal perspectives and personal integration. Um, so, for example, one of the uh, realities we find in anatomy, and so in my lab we use uh, brain electricity as a tool for studying the, the brain's function. And so we study brain waves during cognitive function, and we look at the levels of brain anatomy that are engaged in different parts of uh, making concepts and organizing memories. And what we find from the scientific analysis is that the structures that allow us to organize memory in the limbic system of the brain are also the structures that give value and personal meaning to events, also in the limbic structures of the brain. Now, neuropsychology and cognitive neuroscience have considered these two functions, motivation and emotion on the one hand, and memory on the other is totally separate. But the brain waves that we see are not so separate. Um, 
that we, you know, we see limbic engagement in a difficult decision process. Uh, the anterior cingulate cortex, this uh, ancient structure of the, the core of the brain uh, of limbic circuits is engaged in the most difficult decision processes that people have to deal. So it's, it's fairly natural when you look at biological evidence to see the grounding of even the most complex cognitive processes uh, in the motivational and emotional processes of understanding information and relating the self to the world. Um, so from a scientific point of view, we, we actually see a lot of evidence that allows us to rethink the gap between objective knowledge and subjective meaning. Uh, they're not so different. Mm. Now we do shift. We do shift between these perspectives, and this is another very interesting lesson from neuroimaging research. And this is more the um, functional MRI work that's very popular and very sophisticated now around the world. But one thing they would find is that uh, a set of brain structures would be engaged in a task. Let's say you had a decision-making task uh, while you were being scanned. Um, but then, during a rest period, a different set of brain structures would be engaged. And many times, these were linked to the limbic areas of the brain. And so the investigators called this the default mode, that when you weren't on point for a task, you would turn back to this internal state or this... Uh, different uh, default state. And when they asked people what they were thinking about, they were thinking about personal things uh, during the rest break. So they would be thinking about uh, what, what were they going to pick up for dinner or what something uh, that somebody said to them over the weekend that they were worried about or these self-referential kinds of cognition. So well, I think what the, the science is showing is that we can shift between perspectives for objectivity and subjectivity, but fundamentally, these are linked in a coherent uh, set of, of brain activities. Uh, so I, I think the exciting thing is that science is actually giving us tools for understanding the mechanisms of subjective meaning. And we can bring that to a more integrated epistemology, um, which is the, the study of what knowledge is and how people get it. And I think that's really our goal in Out of the Cave, is to, is to find that more integration uh, opportunity between not only objective science, but also the humanities of understanding human meaning and, and what's important to people and to societies. This is absolutely exciting to really bring these uh, fields together. But of course, you know that uh, people have been trying to look into into these hard questions of human cognition and behavior for really long for a very long time. So, Mark, can you describe perhaps some of the earliest approaches uh, that people implemented to try and disentangle all of these uh, really difficult uh, uh, difficult questions? Sure. Um, and let me say, just in follow up to what Don said, there's another side of this that he just hinted at, but it's really, you know, it's a big part of our book. And that is um, 
all of this knowing activity in this, um, you know, foraging for coherence and meaning in a, in a situation um, is rooted in values, you know. And so mm. the whole idea, we're, we're trying to get over the view of dispassionate reason. You know, reason is um, has nothing to do with affect, nothing to do with the emotions. And that um, and then there's and the, we're trying to get over the idea that there is a, a pure contemplative activity, which isn't tied to any values, unless the ultimate value is something like, oh, to get the truth. But um, we're trying to bring those the, the, the valuing side of human organisms um, and, and all and other organisms into back into the, the discussion here. And so um, to, to jump to um, some traditional views, we started out by going back to the Greeks and even the pre-Socratics. Um, and I just say a word about Plato and Aristotle here because we did that to, because they so beautifully represent a 2,500-year um, tradition of what we call a kind of disembodied conception of knowing. And very simply, I think this is a view people can relate to. We live in a world that's um, uncertain. Um, we're insecure. And, you know, having gone through the pandemic, boy, do we know what kind of general existential insecurity feels like. And I don't know about you, but I still feel some of that today with the variant strains mm -hmm. coming out. So life is precarious, John Dewey said. Um, and we, you know, knowing activity is an attempt to come to grips with that precariousness and to find patterns by which we can negotiate the situations we find ourselves in. That's fine. We, we would agree with that. But the tradition made, took a step beyond that and, and, and in, a, in a bad way. And it, but it's one that's perfectly understandable. So you say, well, look, we're finite creatures. We're in, um, we have to come to grips with, with the indeterminacy and uncertainty of, of human existence. We need, and, and that's all changing, you know, things change on us and, and, and how are we gonna deal with that? The mistake that the, uh, these early Greek thinkers made, in my opinion, is they thought that the only answer to that was something that was unchangeable, unchanging, to, that there was an eternal realm of forms that captured the basic essences of things. And so they took knowing um, out of a context of action and transforming the world. And, and they put it in this more disembodied realm. And, you know, so you get the platonic ideals, the platonic forms, and to know is to grasp those forms and see their relations. Um, so um, the tradition, I think, now you can find some exceptions to this, but the, the tradition handed down to us the idea that knowledge had to be of the unchanging. But the fact is, everything's changing. Some things fast and some things sl more slowly. So um, knowledge is about adapting to and, and having some say in the way things change and go forward. So it's an activity for remaking experience. And the, the tradition was more keeping this contemplative, stand back and see how the forms 
um, are manifest in the things of the world or how a proposition to get it more 20th and 21st century language, how do propositions map onto the world? Um, and that underlying that is a deep um, dualism, you know, of the, un the, the, the fixed, the, the, the necessary, the unchanging versus the indeterminate, the changing world. And I think that's a false dichotomy. And so to overcome it, you have to see knowing as a doing, knowing as a reconstructive activity. Yes, and this completely shifts uh, your perspective as well. So what is this natural philosophy of mind that you present in your book? And what questions does it ask and answer? Um, I, so I'll stay on this for a minute, and then Don will know likely, uh, no doubt, what a... Um, weigh in on this. Um, it says, we are in and of the world. We are not separate from nature. We are natural creatures. We are animals. We're very sophisticated animals. That we, we have many things we do um, that other mammals do and other animals do. Some things they do that are better than us that they can do better than we can do. And there are some things that apparently we can do, like certain kinds of abstract um, reasoning um, and language use of use of symbol systems. So there's some of that in other animals, but we seem to ha have a fairly distinctive capacity there. But we want to see ourselves as um, animals in ongoing interaction with our environment. So the key, uh, one of the keys to naturalism, Dewey said, is interaction. That, that everything starts from an organism in an environment. And the environment you can view as a series of what J.J. Um, Gibson, the perceptual psychologist, called affordances. So like this chair I'm sitting on right now affords me sit-on-ability. You know, given the shape of my body, the makeup of my body, and the structure of the chair, it um, I experience that as being a meaningful thing that I can sit on and interact with in certain ways. So a naturalistic approach is going to embed us in nature, not take us out of nature and standing out trying to look at it from a God's eye point of view, but to say we're always in it. We're always of it. We're always in um, in process in that. And so the naturalism has no recourse to um, explanations of um, supernatural causes or supernatural entities or agents or supernatural forces. So it has to, and I'll end with this, it, it has to work from the bottom up. It has to say that all our values, all our concepts, and, and um, all our knowing um, emerges out of organism environment interactions using the motivational systems that animals have um, and that we have developed in a certain way based on feelings, uh, you know, that give us valuing responses to our environment. So it's an attempt to capture all that in a rich way and, you know, and point out some of the implications for thinking about knowing. When you conceptualize it this way, it does sound quite intuitive, actually. And uh, don't you have anything to add? Well, no, that's right. Uh, so in many ways, we think that coming out of the cave is um, embracing intuitive knowledge, but in a way that can be articulate and scientifically grounded. Um, 
So the, in many ways, that's the exciting convergence is that the embodied method of knowing um, can be understood with the, the best theoretical reasoning we can organize in cognitive neuroscience. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an intuitive mode, but it also can be understood objectively. And that's, I think, the core of a, of a natural philosophy that we're, we're arguing that this is upon us now. Uh, it's not like Mark and I invented it. We're kind of the, uh, the journalists of the changes in the culture uh, that are allowing science and the humanities to communicate more effectively. So there was an, an old idea of the two cultures of the academy. Um, where humanists just really couldn't study science and even consider the concepts. Uh, it was too challenging for them. And scientists, of course, would not want to listen to the perspective of the humanities. It was too subjective and too contextualized to be put to rigorous experimental test. So the chasm uh, in our university systems between science and humanities seem to be unbroachable. Um, and some, I think, to, in order to understand what we're trying in this book, um, it's good to see how did this come about? Um, where did the chasm come from? You could say, how did we get into the cave? Um, you know, how did we get into a, a situation where we could only think subjectively about humanities and we could only think objectively about science. And these were choices uh, that mm. had to be made. Um, and I, I think that's a very important historical perspective on the, on the origins of our understanding of knowledge. What does it mean to know? And I think these are the, the reasons are familiar to us that subjective influences can make us stupid. Uh, they can make us kind of histrionic about interpreting events in a biased, uh, personal way. Uh, and you only have to look at much of the discourse uh, in modern societies, whether uh, regardless of which developed nation you're in now, the, the division between uh, uh, political orientations on a conservative approach on one hand or a liberal approach on the other makes objective discourse very difficult because people have their own biased perspectives. So the, the difficulty of reconciling objective knowledge with the natural subjective perspective that people have led science and philosophy uh, to strive for what we describe in the book as pristine objectivity, where objectivity is, is such a strong goal that we have to deny uh, subjectivity. We have to deny the personal and even cultural context for how we reason, how we organize meaning. So if we appreciate that, we appreciate how we got into the cave, and, and there are good reasons. The bias that occurs from our motivational foundations uh, can be intrinsic. And so in some ways, you can't blame the analytic philosophers, 
or the uh, objective scientists for trying to find ways of having real truth through pristine objectivity. Now, the answer, of course, uh, when you study that, is that it doesn't work, that the human mind is fundamentally mm. grounded in its subjective perspective uh, on, on the one hand, even though it achieves objectivity uh, through, through careful discipline, uh, the motivational and value-based foundations of cognition and knowledge are real. And so to understand their formative structure and the, and the way they organize the mind uh, is really to understand how to achieve objectivity uh, through appreciating the roots, the fundamental subjective roots of knowledge. This is so interesting, and I've really been uh, grappling with with this question. So I don't know whether you know you can answer, but uh, so is the human mind capable of understanding itself, or do you think there's always will be a some layer of subjectivity onto it? What do you think, Mark? Can I? Well, uh, okay. Um, I, I want to be respond to that. Let me say something before I do that. It occurred to me that we never explained out of the cave. Um, and maybe for some listeners who may not be familiar with the cave allegory in Plato, I should just say something about that for a second. And that is, um, so, so this goes back to Plato's Republic. And he he's trying to, he says, imagine prisoners chained in a cave and looking at a cave wall and they can't, they can only stare straight ahead at the wall and behind them um, are, are um, people moving and there are objects sitting on the wall and there's a fire behind that that casts shadows on the cave wall. And that's all the dwellers in the cave see. They see these shadowy things um, and they think that's reality. That's all there is in the world. Well, what if you someone were to come in and um, unchain the the dweller in the cave and, and turn them around toward the fire and they'd be blinded by the light and kind of disoriented, but then they'd get adjusted. And then they'd go and tell the people who were in the cave, you're, you know, um, there's another reality. And they say, oh, come on, that's crazy. You're nuts. And Plato's idea was that um, this was an allegory for if you if you then take the person out of the cave, they, they you they they're out in the sun and they um, and the, they the sun represents the ultimate good. And they turn and they discover the ultimate forms that everything, um, you know, um, mm. adheres to, you know. And so that is that allegory gets used to support the very view we're criticizing that if you want real knowledge, OK, you have to go to um, the, the forms, the unchanging, the fixed, the necessary. And Don and I are saying, no, to be out of the cave is to be is to realize that you're in the real world. You're in the world. You're in nature. And, and everything's coming out of that. It's not to look beyond nature to something else. So anyway, it, um, it helps under, understand the general framework of uh, what we're doing in the title of the book. Now, um, Maybe you could repeat again the question about can you really know is it that can you really know the subjective dimensions? Um, and I think you know if I may say so, that's like um, that's the kind of thing one encounters. It's sort of saying subjective and objective are radically independent. And so you know you'll never get an objective take on subjective features, and you can't get the two together. Um, 
And I, I think that that's not the case. I mean, and, and Don and I are committed to saying that uh, uh, we can get insight into the way these, quote, subjective dimensions and structures and processes um, play a role in what we experience, what we value, and how, what we know, and how we know it, okay? Um, so it's it's more, it's a challenge. It's not saying, oh, it's all been worked out. As Don said, we jump into the middle of things. We're, we're, we're journalists with respect to trying to bring together bodies of research that are trying to examine some of the role of the subjective. Um, and I can give you um, a couple of examples of that. Um, one is a philosopher and um, um, psychoanalyst, uh, Eugene Genlin from the University of Chicago. And he spent much of his career trying to get us to become aware of these dimensions of meaning making that are going on, that are beneath the level of concepts and representations and propositions and theories and all of that, that we are making meaning. And this is what I guess I've spent most of my career trying to explore. Um, we're, we're making meaning all the time, experiencing meaning in and through our bodily engagement at a very basic felt level. Um, Jenin called it the felt sense. And, um, and so it, we're trying to say, look, that's not a mere subjective, meaning idiosyncratic process. All human beings have some form of embodiment. That embodiment shapes what things will stand forth for them as meaningful and how they will become meaningful. So we think you really can, that there's a lot more we can do to um, plumb the depths of human meaning making and to get into these subjective dimensions that are in fact part of what eventually becomes what we, what we call objective or uh, trans-subjective, uh, intersubjective, validatable, um, you know, knowledge. This is indeed uh, reassuring. And I was wondering, so are there any questions that we are not able to answer about human mind, uh, given the set of tools and approaches that we have now? Can we ever achieve this sort of objective baseline where you can, which you can apply to, for example, experiences of different persons and know exactly what they are experiencing. That's a very Don, interesting. Have one. Yeah, Don, did you want to go? Yeah, let me let me try yeah. that one because uh, it is it is fundamentally very interesting. Uh, and so, so just to, to begin with. As we study neural mechanisms and as we study the biological basis of the mind's development, uh, I think the first thing we appreciate is how situated uh, or embedded each mind uh, develops within its family and cultural setting. Uh, you know, we, we think of the brain as being this generic thing that we all have that's kind of the human variety, and uh, so the the brain and its biology. Uh, once we study that, that gives us an explanation of the mind uh, that doesn't have to be subjective and culturally embedded, uh, etc. Uh, 
But actually, what we find mm. is that each brain grows uh, only within its cultural framework. I mean, human, if you just go back uh, a, a few tens of thousands of years and look at the process of human brain evolution, what you see is that the brain evolved in culture. And every kid's brain becomes uniquely specified by her or his culture. So to some extent, I think your question has an answer that, well, it's very challenging to understand a unique subjective mind because the, the very brain that carries it out is organized within a highly unique culturally embedded environment. So it's only the contextualism of the humanities and, and the richness of cultural relativism that could let us understand unique brains. Um, so I think what that shows is a scientific basis for appreciating the uniqueness of subjective perspectives and maybe the difficulty of making generalizations uh, for that. Yes, absolutely. So another thing that you have already touched upon, Don, uh, what do you think would be wider implications of uh, really understanding the human mind? So you already touched upon uh, politics, for example. Can you just expand a little bit? Well, I think there is a an appreciation uh, for the uniqueness of knowledge within a cultural context that comes from uh, really studying the nature of neuroplasticity and how children grow their brains in a specific culture. Um, so those brains even are unique to that culture. And uh, so as we see cultural bias, uh, and we, we might even uh, really have a strong feeling that cultural bias is limiting and it's to be ignored uh, and uh, in an extreme sense it leads to ethnocentrism where a certain cultural only sees its members as good and all other people as bad um, that perspective uh, is it really shows us how strongly embedded we are uh, not just in the body, but in our cultures. And I think what it leads to is an appreciation for the nature of objectivity. And the nature of objectivity uh, comes from understanding the essential constraints we get by growing up in a certain culture with a certain perspective. Many times scientists deny their subjectivity. Uh, and this is part of what we try to explain as pristine objectivity. The scientists want to say, well, no, we, we have no biases because we adopt all the methods of the hypothetical deductive reasoning of science. And therefore, we can ignore the, the constraints of our cultural perspectives or our subjectivity. And that's the mistake, I think, uh, that in many ways can leave us in mm -hmm. the cave. Uh, that really to become objective, we have to appreciate all of the influences that come from personal biases, political biases, and cultural biases. And Mark, 
What yeah. uh, do you think are the most pressing issues that should be addressed uh, yeah. next? Um, so let me go back to a question you raised earlier and then um, pick mm-hmm. up on something Don said, because I, I, I think I understand where you were coming from with this question about are there certain aspects of mind and our sense of self and all that that are forever um, unavailable? You know, we'll never be captured by our best science. And this is a very popular view. You know, I think of David Chalmers as one who has pushed this. But there's several uh, philosophers and psychologists and neuroscientists who have made this kind of claim. Um, and it, it, it seems intuitively valid to most of us. It's like, oh, um, the example they give is like um, neuroscience will never explain why why the um, what what the taste of that lemon tart is, you know, there's something about subjective experience that cannot be communicated. And 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 any scientific explanation of the neural chemical activities in the body can never tell you why that lemon tart tastes the way it did. It's qualitative character. So um, and. I call this view the Mysterians. Others have used this term, um, the Mysterians. It makes me think of the 60s rock group, question mark, and the Mysterians. Uh, <laughs> it gets me to laugh every time I hear this. But uh, um, we're, we're, So the first claim isn't, oh, science is going to explain everything. Okay, that's not the claim that's going on here. We're, we're, we're arguing for, and this is one of the primary implications that uh, – um, Don had referred to, um, we're arguing that we need a science that is attentive to, aware of, engages these subjective dimensions, um, and is aware of its own limitations too, you know, um, that th- this should breed in us a sense of, of humility. But the, in my mind, I don't, and Don and I haven't talked about this too much, but, so this is just my view, but, I think some. I think the question, if, if if you explain the conditions under which someone has the experience of this lemon tart, um, that's about all you can say about that. I mean, you have phenomenological uh, descriptions of what you're experiencing. It's kind of like this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I don't think there's some ultimate mystery there that means that um, you know the nature of mind is. And never reachable, you know, it's always going to escape us. Um, well, let's just see, you know, let's keep developing our various methods. And that's one of the things Don and I have a lot to say about in this book. The, the implication is not find the method. There is no such thing as the method. What we need, because there are multiple levels of functional organization in, mam- in animals and, and humans, we need multiple modes, multiple methods of inquiry, and we need to look for converging evidence. And that's one of the big payoffs from this. Um, you know, that it's, it's, it's saying that science is wonderful because it, it, there are certain constraints, there, there's intersubjectivity, there are um, built-in critical dimensions and all of that, but that doesn't mean that all science is going to be good or right, you know. Um, and it doesn't mean that um, there's one, quote, scientific method. There are multiple methods employed in different sciences, 
we need the we need work from the humanities, from phenomenology, from interpretive theory. Um, so that's one of the big implications for me is pluralism um, and humility about you know making grandiose claims, you know. But we we um, we are still committed to the idea that empirical inquiry can carry us forward here. And by empirical, we don't just mean the standard sciences, you know, you can say that a certain kind of phenomenological description is empirical. Yeah, for sure. So your book really beautifully connects many ideas and concepts that can be quite uh, difficult to understand. So you expertly guide your readers step by step to get a deeper understanding. So you sort of build up on the previous chapters to progress. And I really found that after reading one chapter, I would take two days just obsessing over it. So what was the rationale to structure your book this way? Or did it just unfold organically? We wanted to start with what we took to be a kind of common myth, um, what we called a disembodied mind, a disembodied knowing. Because we feel that there is a problem, you know, that's a problem and that that is a pervasive view that has has created many difficulties for us. And so in, in following Dewey, we argue that an organism and environment, you know, has um, needs and the needs and, and the motivational system create search in the environment in, in search of satisfaction and that needs search satisfaction structure we're claiming is pervasive in in, you know animal species um and so we we wanted to start with a need (laughs) you know Mm. um it's uh, like we've we've got a a 2500 year 2700 year tradition of thinking about knowing and there's there's something uh, not right about it um and it's not just a matter of minor tinkering so we wanted to start with that and then to, then to say and look here's how that idea developed amongst famous philosophers and you know the different dimensions of it that that they they um developed and then we wanted to say well is there a philosophy that is able to to um work constructively and cooperatively with uh, neuroscience and various cognitive sciences. And our claim is that American pragmatism um, is the best candidate out there for providing the larger philosophical framework for um, engaging the sciences. Now, I'll let Don go on from there, um, I mean, about what that meant about the um, the the, the, you know, the middle chapters which are developing the the science of this yeah so I think that was part of our goal was to um, begin with the problem begin you know where did we get this idea of pristine objectivity where did we get the idea that knowledge could not be subjective um, on the one hand in science or on the other hand, in humanities, where did we get the idea that all knowledge is completely relative and that scientific objectivity is a, a fiction developed by dead white European males? Um, so that this was like the context uh, for how do we put this together to understand the subjective perspective, the values and emotion that are the foundation 
of our brain activity? And how do we integrate that into a kind of knowledge that's both embodied, but also objectively verifiable? Uh, that, that was the goal. So the, the middle chapters of the book then dig down into the, the neuroscience concepts. How is the mind functioning uh, in a way where concepts are not totally divorced from feelings, but actually come from feelings? Because that's what we find when we look at mm. the evidence on how we remember how we organize perceptions even. We start with feeling states. We start with the, the kind of fundamental sense of purpose or value, or uh, Mark used the term affordances. That's a very good kind of ecological sense of the meaning of things for organisms. Well, we human organisms begin our conceptual activity with the same embodied and motivated substrate. So to explain how this works, we look at anatomy. Uh, and, and, and so I, I think if we looked at our natural philosophy, another way to describe that is an anatomically correct philosophy, uh, where the human brain and its foundations in subcortical arousal systems, uh, limbic emotional systems, this is the toolkit that we have to organize concepts and decisions and uh, judgments. So really, once we look at the anatomy and we understand um, the human experience coming from more basic vertebrate anatomical structures, uh, then we have a, a kind of a scientific toolkit to appreciate the holism of the human mind in its subjective and, and cultural foundations, but also its achievements of truly objective and uh, generic knowledge where uh, the subjective biases and influences can be overcome by the rational uh, processes that are appreciated in philosophy and about the empirical foundations that we understand in scientific research. Yeah, and for sure that uh, was uh, very, very effective. So what discoveries about yourselves and society along your journey to writing Out of the Cave surprised you the most? I'll, I'll go first. Um, so maybe it wasn't surprise, um, like, uh, oh, I hadn't thought of that at all, but it was more like, a, a general accumulation of that there's really all this um, research going on to help us flesh out this view, you know, that, that it really, that we were onto something. So that was the excitement, <laughs> you know, not that we had discovered it, but that we could put it together in a certain way and see some of its implications, if you know what I mean. And um, so it was, for me, it was the excitement, you know, I, if I, I could never, I, I always feel if you, you know, humbled when I try to read uh, the neuroscience. And so without Don, I would be, you know, um, uh, over in the corner crying in my beer or something like that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> feeling completely, uh, you know, unable to, to go forward. But you start to see that there are these bodies of research that are 
developing these different dimensions and we're getting a very coherent and powerful explanatory take on things. That's what was exciting, you know, um, and to see that, that, um, you know, things that I may have come at from a perspective of pragmatist, American pragmatist philosophy and some of the work I'd done on language and the, the nature of meaning in, in, um, as, as it's connected to language and meaning as it goes beneath language, that there's a lot of wonderful research that's fleshing that out, giving maybe some critical dimension to it, but ultimately supporting the general direction. Um, and one of the things uh, I was thinking of when Don was talking was that, um, so for example, implications of this, um, you know, there's a large uh, literature in um, moral psychology, which has just taken off in the last 20 years, um, you know, and and showing that you know we're we're not the um, pristinely rational creatures we thought ourselves to be, you know, that we're that really our moral judgments. This you know, following Kahneman and uh, Tversky and the thinking fast and slow sort of business, but that's been elaborated into an understanding of how much our our moral understanding is a set of habits that we've developed and that, you know, have been um, entrenched in us that drive us, that we're not really completely in control of. And they give a kind of intuitive basis for our response to um, situations. And so that we're, we, we have, one of the surprising things is how little we're really in control of that. And it raises fundamental questions about, well, can we become aware of it? Can we, um, you know, influence the way our habits develop, uh, that sort of thing. And Don, what did you get excited about? Well, I, it, you know, it, it, when you, we started out the book uh, with some vague ideas of where we were going to go, but uh, it was a process of discovery for me in certain ways. I think one of the, the things that I, I really enjoyed was appreciating how fundamental metaphors are to the cognitive process. And uh, that, you know, Mark approached this from linguistics and philosophy of, of saying that. Our everyday experience uh, gives us structures for understanding meaning. And so uh, we, we may have theoretical concepts uh, that uh, involve categories and what fits in one category or another. Well, how do we get that? Well, our early metaphors for containers might give us a structure for understanding that nature of meaning. So a child playing with pots and pans may get a sense of what goes in one container and not another. And that becomes a metaphor for categories. This kind of analysis turns out to be very fundamental in the brain's representation of information. Uh, It's a way to see how elementary primitive experience becomes organized in more abstract uh, frameworks. So here we have uh, concepts from basically philosophical analysis that turn out to be very explanatory for neural mechanisms of representing concepts. Uh, 
And of course, there's a there's a good tradition of templates and uh, primitive categories that are organized in cognitive psychology. So for me, it was very exciting to see this integrated with the approaches to neural networks and cortical representations that I've studied in the neuroscience framework, where certain primitives of experience are reworked in um, everyday experience and everyday learning, but also into more complex uh, theoretical and abstract constructs. Um, the primitives are still there and they're organized and reworked in sophisticated ways. So what is your favorite setting to think about human mind? Is it when you walk through the woods or having a cup of tea uh, surrounded by books or maybe in fMRI machine room or washing dishes? Oh, uh, that's easy for me. Um, that is, it's going to lunch with Don Tucker <laughs> at the Glenwood. <laughs> and that was the most exciting because I'd, he'd say something and I'd say, well, that's kind of like this, you know, and um, it was very synergistic. And we, we like all the our problem was and the book kind of shows this all these ideas come, you know, um, pouring out and trying to get them all ordered and, um, you know, get enough detail, but to show that it's not hand waving, but, um, you know, so there's, there was an excitement level in our, our, the conversations for a couple of years before we started really doing the writing. Um, that was exciting for me because, um, of the kind of cooperative, you know, back and forth between the two of us that generated new, for me, new ways to think about things um, and an awareness of, um, you know, how the, how the brain body uh, works, um, what role evolution is playing, what role individual development's playing and how those all fit together. Um, so that was the most productive uh, side of learning and engagement for me. Yeah, I agree. And Don, do you concur? Yeah, no, no, I totally agree. Those uh, we had a, a number of conversations that you know I think somebody listening might not have made sense of it. That uh, you know that's we we explore different topics and it you know went in a number of directions, but I think uh, both of us had a sense that there was a coherent theme. Um, even if we really didn't know exactly how it was going to end up. I think in some ways the book was a surprise to me, how it, how it came together. And some of the concepts we developed toward the end um, about the nature of abstract thinking and the nature of abstract knowledge that can be totally coherent with the more elementary motivational and emotional primitives that we begin with those were discoveries that i think we didn't appreciate and even in our early conversations and i would say there's another setting that was very important to me i mean all these settings walking in the woods or doing the dishes um the reason they're such good origins or such good foundations for new ideas is very important to understand. And that's because the mind mm -hmm. works in the background. 
the mind is as much unconscious as it is conscious. So as Mark and I would argue at different points, uh, we would go off on our own, but our minds were dealing with this in ways we didn't, weren't conscious of. That's just the nature of human memory consolidation or organization. So I would have uh, new reflections that would come up at different times, uh, working out in the woods or uh, a good time for me is waking up in the morning, having had some very strange dreams and then realizing that somehow these questions we were struggling with were manifesting in my dreams in ways I can't necessarily uh, interpret effectively. Uh, so in some ways, this, this was the very fact that we discover things in various settings, uh, whether it's washing dishes or walking in the woods, tells us something about the way the mind works. It's spontaneously organizing things uh, during wake, during quiet reflection, and during sleep and dreams uh, that give us resources to emerge from the unconscious domains of experience that we try to bring to um, articulation in consciousness. Oh, for sure. And I'm sure many of our listeners uh, will relate to that, that if you have some sort of problem you want to solve, well, you just have to sleep on it, for example. That's right. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what would be your next project? And we're going to start with Mark. Um, well, just coincidentally, just um, this week, I finished another book with a neuroscientist named uh, Jay Shulkin. Um, and um, it, the, the, sub, the title is Mind and Nature. Um, uh, John Dewey, Cognitive Science and a Natural Philosophy for Living. And it was stimulated by this, um, by, by the work with Don. Um, and it brings John Dewey, the American pragmatist philosopher, much more centrally in. So basically the idea is we're claiming kind of with, uh, uh, half seriously, we're claiming that uh, D John Dewey's book, Experience and Nature, is one of the most important philosophy books of all time. Secondly, that it gets um, elaborated and enriched and deepened and critiqued in certain ways by contemporary cognitive and neuroscience, and that it that naturalism and this is pertains to what Donna and I were doing. Naturalism is not something to be lamented. Oh, we're just animals, and there's no eternal life, and all of this. No, I mean naturalism. We're, we're trying to say gives a. Um, uh, a meaningful philosophy for living. You know, how should you think mm -hmm. about yourself? That's what Don and I were interested in, too. How should you think about who you are and what's possible for you and how you think and where your values come from? These fundamental human issues that we have to face or we should face, um, they, they, you know, naturalism has profound implications for those. Um, and Don and I are, we continue to talk, though we haven't gotten back to the in-face, face-to-face lunches yet, but about all kinds of things we're thinking about now. And if we thought things were swirling out of control before, you know, well, now 
Don's research, all this exciting research on sleep and consolidation of memory and all is bringing up a whole nother um, dimension of this story. Um, and I'm hoping that we can keep talking about that, those things. Don will say something about that. Well, that's right. In many ways, Out of the Cave was very productive for helping me to refocus my scientific research. So my associates and I, as I mentioned earlier, we study the brain's electrical activity, and we're very interested in the organization of memory. Um, and as I mentioned, it's rooted in the limbic structures, very primitive structures for evaluating feelings and motives and homeostasis of the, the body's internal state. So from out of the cave, by the perspectives that we organize, it's led me to have a new appreciation for the forms of meaning that uh, we have to organize in memory consolidation. And it's been very productive. So now, for example, we're seeing that in sleep, your non-REM periods, the non-rapid eye movement periods of dreams, um, which, which are very kind of reality-oriented coping uh, dreams, they're not the bizarre uh, dream states of REM sleep. That memory consolidation of the non-REM sleep is very important to explicit memory. Uh, your knowledge of exact things that happen in the world, things that we would say are objective. In contrast, what we're, we're seeing is that REM dreams, the rapid eye movement dreams that are really what Freud studied, uh, the bizarre, unusual ideation that happens during sleep, that's a different kind of cognitive organization. For example, it does not help with your explicit memory. Uh, what happened yesterday? How do you remember things you learned on a test? The REM sleep does not help with that. The only thing it seems to help with is the, the implicit uh, or, for example, insight problems where you're unconscious of the solution until suddenly the insight takes form. That's what REM is contributing to. Um, and from a number of other lines of evidence, mostly from animal work, we see that that kind of cognition is very subjective, very personally relevant. So suddenly we're, we're getting insights into the very fundamental neural mechanisms of memory consolidation that are organized around these major themes of knowledge between objective, explicit information and subjective, contextual implicit insight knowledge that we basically formulated in out of the cave. So I think there are many avenues for going forward uh, from the concepts that we began exploring in this book. That sounds super exciting. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also the book? Oh, okay. So, um, the, the book is due out to be published on August 17th. And so um, the um, MIT Press will do its um, advertising and, you know, um, 
exp- uh, make the book available to us. Uh, but I think Don and I each have our websites, um, which give the related, you know, some fairly extensive related research, mind philosophical cognitive science and Don's with the neuroscience um, that uh, are, are, are bodies of work that we've drawn on together. And so the, that kind of information is accessible on our websites. That's right. And you can uh, quickly pick up a pretty broad context of information by going to Google Scholar. Uh, you, if you want to read some of the background information about previous books and previous work. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much to both of you for joining me today. It has really been a thoughtful discussion. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure.